When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to Girl Code. Now you might be wondering, Caitlin, that's not your part. That's what Maddie says. And you're right, Maddie's not here, all right? She's gone, bitches. <laughs> no, we actually just forgot to film, not film, we forgot to record an intro uh, when we were both together, so you just get me. But we have a very exciting episode coming up today. It is with Joe Parney. Joe came up with the concept of emotional fitness, which you're going to learn about today. But basically, in short, he is just teaching us how to handle the challenges that we face in life, be emotionally fit, as he would say, to just take on our life. Works hard. (laughs) Life is stressful. Breakups, dramas, family, all these things happen to us. And even little micro things, you know, just like when he doesn't text you back or he sends you a short message and you're not sure what what it means and you spend the whole day spiraling about it. He is going to put a stop to that, which, you know, look, sometimes needed. I honestly took a lot from this episode and I know Maddie did as well. It felt very motivational and just eye-opening. We also talk a little bit about near-death experiences, which is so fucking crazy. I always have wondered what happens uh, when you nearly die. And we touch on that right near the end of this episode. Basically, it's crazy, all right? They all have a similar experience. So stay tuned to the end to find out what the similar experience is that everyone seems to have when they are pronounced clinically dead. And then bam, they're back alive. So yeah, that's what's happening this episode. It's obviously not a normal catch up chatty episode, but we think you guys might take a bit from this, especially with us all just trying to get through life as best as we can. One less breakdown at a time. Anywho, let's just get straight into this episode. So your whole thing is emotional fitness. Please, can you explain to everyone what is emotional fitness? What is emotional fitness? So emotional fitness is, in my work, it's measured by the quality of our relationship with uncertainty. So, and in the work that I've been doing for a long time now, it's pretty much I've come to the sort of realization that our relationship with uncertainty is by a long shot one of the most important relationships we can have because it ripple effects across everything in terms of the inevitable crossroads, forks in the roads, challenges, stresses, pressures, you know, anxieties, depression, depressed moods, you know, all these things are affected by how the attitude, the meaning, and the approach that we take toward uncertainty. So what would you say, how can that translate to then, I guess, like in terms of relationships or in career for young people? Yeah, most of our audience are, you know, trying to navigate their 20s. So I feel like your emotional fitness knowledge will be very beneficial. So yeah, how can we relate that back to what I guess our audience would be going through? Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe what we'll do is to answer that question properly, um, how about if I just give you just a two-minute, three-minute sort of helicopter ride over the top of the frameworks? Because there are five core focus areas of of the work that I do, which and then we can translate that into, you know, anything to do with whether you're 20, whether I know that most of your audience is in their 20s. It doesn't really matter what stage of life. This is all going to be very um, practical and implementable and useful. So how about we do that? And then we can sort of go into the nitty gritty of it. Perfect. So as I said, there's five core focus areas with emotional fitness. The first one is identity. So identity, you know, a lot of people have different definitions what identity is. My definition of identity is it's what you allow yourself to be defined by. So if I define myself by my career, for example, uh, the potential issue with that is that I become hypersensitive to the results I'm getting in my career. So if my career is not working out the way that I wanted to go, or if I've hit been hit with a wall or something's not gone my way, I'm going to take that profoundly personally because identity is the single most powerful force in the human condition. Uh, and the reason why that's true is because we will do anything to remain consistent with how we see ourselves, with our self-concept, 
So a self-concept is another way of looking at it, which is made up of what I'm worthy of, not worthy of, what I deserve, don't deserve, my capabilities, my strengths, my weaknesses, am I enough for this, I'm not enough for that. You know, it's all these kinds of choice points, if that makes sense, right? So identity is the first one. That's really, really, and we're going to go a little bit deeper into that to answer your question about the the challenges that most 20-year-olds face in relationships uh, and career choices and things like that. The second focus area is life stage. And and life stage is not uh, to do with age. It's actually got to do with our psychological life stage, which is the the journey from ambition to meaning. So what that means is that um, for a long time in our lives, and it's it's beyond, and it's from from pretty much early 20s until our late 40s on balance on average, um, is that we're in the ambition-driven world. And the ambition-driven world is about building. It's about getting getting the skill, getting the experience, getting the knowledge, getting the lessons, get the girl, get the guy, get the house, get the wealth. It's it's all the building phase. And and we pretty much most of us in Western society spend until our, you know, mid to late 40s-ish uh, building that. And then what happens for a lot of people is they experience some kind of, you might have heard of a midlife crisis or some kind of identity crisis where they start questioning everything like oh man i've chased i've gone up the wrong tree i've been my ladder's up against the wrong building i've been doing the wrong thing and they start questioning everything and this is where we start to go through this revolving door this like psychological revolving door from ambition to meaning and the meaning driven world is different it's where um we we don't hang our hat on our career anymore we don't we're not concerned anymore with what other people think of us except for the people that we love and care for so you, you, you two beautiful people who are friends together, you will always care what each other's each other's thoughts are about each other. That'll be forever until you're 97, if you're blessed to live that long, right? Um, the difference between that and when we're in our 20s is when we're in our 20s, we care about what everyone thinks, including the person down the road who doesn't even know us or the person on social media who we'll never meet. Um, we'll talk about that. We'll circle back to that in a sec. Um, so that's life stage, and that's the journey from ambition to meaning where we move from ego, egocentric um, ways of living where I'm worried about other people and what they think of me to heart-centric, which, which is where we become more courageously fully expressed as who we feel that we are. Now, by the way, you can enter the meaning-driven world in your 20s, and we'll, I'll circle back on that one too. Then we have um, the third key area, which is our values. Most people don't know what their values are um, because they confuse values with morals. Uh, a moral compass and, a, and, a, and an emotional compass, which is our values, our moral compass is doing the right thing. It's the it's the standard hallmarks of your character. So understanding the boundaries that you won't cross, it's doing the right thing. Basic fundamental example of that is just drive on the right side of the road, will you? That's basic, basic moral compass. Values, and that's universal in our community. Uh, so je- basically, what you you and I would say is the right and wrong thing. We'd have a we'd have a massive agreement over that. Yeah, you know, fundamental things like don't hurt someone, be kind. These basic things. That's moral compass. Our values can be very different, which is basically what drives your passion, what your desires are. So desires to act, desires to perform, desires to create product. You know, whatever your desires are, and that's values. That's the third area. So we've got identity, life stages. Uh, values, uh, and then we've got emotional flexibility, which is an interesting one because emotional flexibility, most people don't know that you and I, we manufacture and create our emotions. Our emotions don't respond to facts. Our emotions only respond to our interpretation of the facts. It's what you and I make something mean. So if someone dumps us in a relationship, what does that mean? It's your choice, and we'll talk about that. And then the fifth point, the fifth core focus area is perspective. And it's really important that we create and develop what I call a clean perspective. Our perspective is our worldview, our general philosophy, our purview of life, you know, like our big picture. And you need to have a clean perspective, which to to have a clean perspective, we want to be able to have instant access to gratitude and appreciation. Because when you get caught up in the dramas of life, Stuff happens during the day, stuff goes wrong and things happen. Um, you want to have a perspective, like things, have you ever been told, hey, just get things into perspective here, will you? Have you ever been told that or heard that? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so, and you've got to, so you need to have a perspective that's clean that you can lean on because if your perspective is all 
messed up with all these unresourceful thoughts and everything, you can't rely on your perspective to get through a, a drama of that particular day. So, so identity, uh, life stages, values, emotional flexibility, and uh, perspective is the the macro view of emotional fitness. Is that all making sense, girls? Yeah, definitely. What you were saying about, I think the first one, identity, I think that would be very relevant to people per se in a relationship. I think that's a very common thing we get submissions about people writing in, they just, their whole identity becomes their partner. And then you really struggle getting through a breakup because they feel like you've lost your whole identity. identity. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to expand on that with you on how if someone was listening and they've just been in a probably maybe codependent relationship and it's their whole identity and they're trying to deal with that crumbling crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll talk to that in a second. What I want to say first though is what I'm going to share with you is not going to make a breakup easier because they're they're shit. They're tough. It's awful. I remember my first love in 1989, girls. My God, that's when I was 19. You, you was your mother even born then? I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> but um, well, I know that Karen was, but uh, anyway, but uh, in 1989, it was the first time. It was she, she was my uh, second ever girlfriend, and I was at uni first year. Uh, I'm of Italian heritage. She's of she was of uh, Greek heritage. I convinced myself it was all bullshit. I just told all this to myself. I convinced myself that she was the one. Oh my god, this is amazing! I've met the one when I'm 19. How lucky am I? I don't have to live through all this crap. I can just go out with this girl, and and it's heavenly ever after. It's like we're happy for three months at uni. It was amazing. Like I was just living on air, and just nothing could could uh, you know take me down. And um, and then. She dumped me for another guy, right? And and I remember crying for weeks. I had to hide because I've never cried in front of people before back then in 19 being a guy. So I cried for weeks. And I didn't realize that, yes, at the time, because this conversation that you and I are having right now, I didn't know that this conversation that we're having and that we're about to have even existed when I was 19. All I knew was life is hell. It's all turned to shit. The woman of my <laughs> dreams, I'm never going to see her again. Like, how dare this fucking bitch drop me like this? You're allowed to yeah. swear on the podcast. Yes, I know. I, I listened to a couple of, I've listened to a couple of podcasts to measure that. I, I was at a conference yesterday, right? And I was speaking at this conference, this business conference. And um, before I got up, the, the previous, uh, the, the actual owner of this whole conference thing, said fuck four times in the first 30 minutes of his talk. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can actually be all of me and it's all good. I feel like I trust people more when they swear. I'm like, you know, you don't have any walls up. I love it. I love it. I love that, Caitlin. That's, uh, I, I like that a lot. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, Maddie. Oh, both of you said just a moment ago how, yeah, your identity gets swallowed up into a vacuum of this relationship that's now disappeared into the into the ether. It's like, Oh my God, like who am I now and what am I? So what's really so so the point I want to make before I share with you some insights is that what I'm going to share is not going to make anything less difficult. It's still going to be hard. It, it's inevitable that we're going to face, you know, twenties if we're unless you're just blind lucky, where I, I know some people who met their life partners when they were 17 and you know, 30 years later, they're still genuinely happily married and together and all the rest of it. I'm putting that those cases aside because they're rarer. Like most of us have to go through the road of rejection. Have you got? Have you guys experienced a, a rejection before? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So you know the pangs of it and the pain of it. It's ugly. It's awful. It's shit. So, in saying all that, <laughs> um, let's talk about identity. So we need to understand that there are different identity phases that we shift through in life. So I'll, I'll share that with you because I think it's going to be quite relevant to what we're talking about here, right? The first stage of identity that we go through, and this is based on the work of a guy called Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, Jungian psychology. This is from 100 years ago. The man was a mystic. He was amazing. He had a near-death experience, which I understand you want to talk about as well. Oh, yeah. Near-death experience research? Yes. (laughs) We'll get to that. So anyway, Carl Jung, he identified that there are four universal stages of life that we all go through. Um, The first stage 
is what he called the athlete stage. Now, this is not to be taken literally. It's an archetype. So the athlete stage is where we define ourselves. Remember, identity is what we define ourselves by. At the athlete stage, this is typically in our mid-teens, 16-ish, 15-ish, 14-ish, depending on how mature and mature we are at 14, 15, all the way through to our mid to late 20s. Generally, for most people, we go through this thing called the athlete stage. The athlete stage means we define ourselves by our material possessions and our physicality. So how I walk, how I talk, how I look, um, the the car that I have, the bike that I have, the apartment that I have, the you know the things that I have, and and it's and it's this identity stage is driven by what's called a core driving question that sits in the middle, into the in the center of the psychology of this person, and the core driving question is, what do you think of me? What do you think of my clothes? What do you think of my hair? What do you think of my bike? What do you think of my car? What do you think of my apartment? What do you think of my look? What do you think of anything that I possess. Um, and and the reason why it's important to know is that when we've outsourced our power universally to the thoughts of others, other people's opinions, it's guaranteed we're going to have low self-esteem. Because, And this is normal, natural, and I reckon even healthy because we need to sort through this to get to the other side. And so, of course, if I'm going to uh, put my identity hat into, into somebody else's life, where I'm because also part of identity. I remember when I was when I was a kid, when I was 19, 20, I was proud to have this girl on my arm. I was like, check out my chick. Like, this is amazing. Right. And but that was the ego side, but that was also part of this athlete stage where it's like, hey, what do you think? What do you think of her? What do you think of me with her? What do you think of us together? What do you think of, you know, all these different things? Um, and, and to give an example of how powerful this is. You might find this hard to believe I, with what I'm going to say, and I've got photos to prove this, is that I used to have really long, curly, luscious hair. Can you imagine that? I can long, see it with the yeah. dark eyebrows. Oh, yeah, I can see it. You're both too kind. And it's true. The curls did get the girls. And and I used to get a lot of attention for it, and I used to get uh, comments, and uh, I'd go to... Uh, you know, when I was with my best mate, we'd go to nightclubs and I would wet the hair so it would fling everywhere. When I was just, it was just ridiculous. And um, so when I was 19, my dad said to me, listen, you need to go out and get a job because I was in between, I was transferring from a science degree to a psychology degree because I went into the wrong degree because I didn't know myself. So I went into the wrong course, found out that wasn't for me. And, and I had six months off in between transitioning from science to psychology. And um he said, go and get a job. So I, I applied for a job at this five-star hotel. This is in Melbourne to work as a waiter or something. And the guy said to me, this is 989. So he wouldn't say this. You wouldn't hear this these days. He said, we'll give you the job. You've just got to cut your hair. And I remember when he said that, I had this massive reaction on the inside. It was like, like insert many fuck words here. It's like, oh, you're, like, you're kidding me, aren't you? Like, And I left. I didn't say anything to him. I left, went home. Dad said, How'd you go? I said, they they got, they offered me the job. They just wanted me to cut, they want me to cut my hair. And my dad said, So when are you starting? And I said, I'm not. I'm not going to cut my hair. And for two weeks, we had this relentless argument about this hair business. I didn't even know why I was so overreactive. But the reason why I was overreactive was because my hair, it sounds ridiculous. My hair was a big part of my identity. And when the guy said, cut it, uh, that translated unconsciously because I didn't know this back then. It translated to you're telling me to sacrifice my identity to come and work for you. Like imagine, girls, if someone said to you, we don't want you to be you. We want you to be like this uh, because an insert story here. You'd be thinking like something completely different to what you're about and what you stand for. We don't want you to be that. We want you to be this. It's like it's like that. And thankfully, I made the whether it was courageous or whatever it was, I made the decision to to keep my hair and didn't get that job. And I ended up getting other work anyway with my hair. <laughs> and uh, But that's an example of how hypersensitive we become to at this athlete stage of the stuff that we possess. So the athlete stage is defined by physicality and material possession. We put a lot of uh, value on that. So I'm going to answer your question, but that, that's important to have that in the background. Because then what happens, right, in our 20s, something that happens to a lot of us in our 20s is our responsibilities begin to expand. 
There's financial obligations and responsibilities. There's relationship obligations and responsibilities. There's, for some of us, there's children that come along, you know, in our 20, late 20s or whenever it is. Um, for me, when I was 26, that's when Silvana and I, my wife Silvana, uh, we got married um, when we were 26. Yesterday was our 27th uh, wedding anniversary. Congrats. Congratulations. My God, well, I've been married longer than you guys have been alive, I think. It's true. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> That's like rocked as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So 26, I was married. We bought a, a block of land. We built a house. So And so I had these responsibilities that expanded. I've got a marriage, I've got a mortgage, and I've got a career. So when our responsibilities expand, our identity moves into the second phase. And the second phase is the warrior archetype. The warrior is in hunter, right? Where we go into this building mode that I mentioned earlier and the, and this, and the, and the core driving question that, that drives the warrior archetype is what can I get, get the experience, get the skill, get the wisdom, get the knowledge, get the girl, get the guy, get the house, etc. whatever it is that we're chasing that uh, we value. Right. And we spend the next, for most people, not all, most people spend the next decade or two in warrior stage building, uh, you know, securing, building their lives. And, and this is um, this can happen at any stage. Uh, it can happen to someone when they're eighteen. One of my friends never went to uni. He started a very su- successful hospitality career, and he's still in hospitality today. Um, so he got into the warrior stage a lot earlier than I did. I got into the warrior stage, um, yeah, mid twenties before just before I got married, twenty five ish, something like that. Um, and then eventually, for most of us, is when we're in our forties and fifties, we we go to the third stage. And that third stage is the archetype of what Jung spoke of as the states person. This is the this is the part of our this is the identity stage where our, the questions evolve. They go from "What do you think of me?" evolves to "What can I get?" which evolves to "What can I give?" What can I give? So now we're def- at that stage of life. We're defining ourselves by our legacy, by our legacy. Now the re- and and then it goes to the fourth stage, which goes into the archetype of spirit. That's where we identify with with consciousness itself. This is where we're not identified with our personality anymore. We're not identified by our possessions anymore. We're not even identified by our our career success. We're not even identified by our legacy. Where we're searching for different answers. We're searching. Some people might say searching for God, looking for spirit, looking for non physical experiences, expansion of consciousness. Um, trying to work out what we're doing here. Because I said to my sons, because I asked me all these questions about life stuff, and I said, "Listen, I can tell you stuff, but at the end of the day, no one has any clue where we come from, how we got here, and why we're here, and what happens when we leave here. No one knows. We can have our conversations about it, but we actually don't know, right? All we can do is navigate our lives as best as we can, right? So now, circling back, is that all making sense, girls? Yeah, no, definitely. This is really did, good. Did you have any questions about any of that stuff? I feel like you just broke down identity so well. That makes so much sense for the different stages. Like athlete, for sure, like teenage years mm. is very much like that. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, for sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, cool. Well, something to be clear, it, this is not linear. We don't just go from athlete to warrior and then that's it, now we're in warrior. We, we move around. We go up and down. So, yeah, and and, and we integrate the previous stage into the next. So, what happens is when we're in the warrior stage, we integrate the athlete within us. So, for example, in um, 2006, when I started my business, you know, I had to incorporate athlete, which was looking after my body and my energy. Because I say to people all the time, life's not about time management; it's about energy management. Right? You manage your energy, you'll work out how to manage your time. So, um, it's integrating. So, I had to integrate athlete into warrior, which was take care of your body, take care of your energy, work out your nutrition, do all that physical stuff, do you know, do the running and the workouts, all that sort of stuff, take care of your body. So then it's a vehicle that where I can go and achieve my goals in the warrior stage. And uh and now that that now that you know we're my wife and I are in our 50s and we're moving into that sort of third stage, we still got to take care of business, right? Money and stuff like that. Finance is a big part of the warrior stage take care of that, make sure you're investing, doing all the right things and educated and all that sort of stuff. And at the same time, taking care of the athlete, which is the um, which is the body part. So, so we're always integrated, but we're always moving up and down. And so when we have a crisis, sometimes what happens is we can go all the way back to the beginning. Not that we're starting again. It's just 
It's just that's what what can happen. And so the conversation I guess I want to have with the beautiful people listening is that it's inevitable, balance of probabilities, it's inevitable you're going to have a relationship bust up. And it's easy from from this side of the fence for me to say to you, uh, don't take it personally, but I can say that till the cows come home and we will all take it personally. That's the reality, right? So therefore, my advice is um, don't allow the horrible experience of being dumped or the difficult experience of being rejected to carry on to the next relationship because that's the mistake that I made. When this girl uh, dumped me when I was 19 in that relationship, I didn't know, but I had already taken on an attitude of that's never, because I never experienced tears and pain like that in my life, right? So I didn't even realize that I'd said to myself, that's never going to happen again. And so I'd go into the next relationship and I'd carry that pattern to the next relationship. And guess what I did, girls? I would sabotage the next relationship so I'd be the one busting up so I wouldn't have to go through the pain, the, the inevitable pain of being rejected again. So I did that for for another three relationships. One relationship went for two years and I and I um, pretty much stuffed it up at the end because uh, I didn't want her to tell me that, uh, that, that, that it's over and I, didn't want to, I just wouldn't, didn't want to experience that pain again. And then when I met... Uh, Sylv, uh, in in um, in 1993 or 94, whatever it was, um, I was starting to do the same pattern. And luckily, I had a really good mate, my best mate, still my best mate today. He said, he said to me, he goes, what are you doing? This is a good opportunity. She's a good woman, good person and all this, and you're mucking around and doing all these patterns and all these things. And I woke up to myself and, uh, and I realized I'm going to give this a go again. I'm going to give all of myself to another woman and what what else are you going to do? You're going to keep doing this pattern for the rest of your life, live shallowly instead of living deeply with people, be real, be you, be unfiltered, be unedited, be available. <laughs> so I did that. And it was scary as all heck because I was so scared of just being, you know, emotionally slapped again. You know what I mean? Like, so, and luckily it's worked out because here we are, you know, 20, well, 27 years of marriage, but 30 years later from our first date, here we are still together and, and really, you know, happy together. So another thing I want to add about the 20s stage, and I think you just tapped onto it before, Maddie, is that chances are that you're both well and truly into the warrior stage with the athlete still quite strong within you, you know. So there's still a sensitivity to people's opinions about, and I don't know you you guys personally, but most um, both men and women are uh, sensitive in their 20s still. To the opinions of others about how you look, how you how you how you walk, talk, sound, you know, what do you think of my cool things and all this sort of stuff. There's still that sensitivity there, but there's a priority that goes over that, over the top of that, which is I'm now career focused. I'm now the warrior. I'm now the hunter. I'm now going out to the metaphorical forest and I'm hunting for my results. The 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 challenge with that is that with identity, then our hat, our identity hat is hanging off results. So now if my results aren't coming my way, if I'm not winning, if I'm not getting that promotion, if I'm not winning in my career or in my business, I'll take that personally. So whatever defines us owns us. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true because I'm thinking in career, like if something goes wrong, I from pers- I take that to heart. For real. So I, that's a great point. Like how do you not take if something goes wrong, if you're in your 20s, like if you don't get yeah. the dream job or something, how do you not let that affect you and basically ruin your life? Here's my best answer to that, is that we need to realize, and this, this is a bit of a confusing statement, but I'll explain it properly if I, if I can, is that one of the truths of life is that life itself is impersonal, right? Now, what does that even mean? So... How to assess whether something should be taken personally or impersonally is to ask yourself this question. If anybody else was in this situation with the same person experiencing the same conversation, the same issue, would they be experiencing the same pain as me? And the answer would be yes. So that pain is not exclusive to you. It's anyone in that situation that you're facing. I'll give you an example. It's like it's like this. It's like if I go um if I go to some part of the world during during their winter 
and I'm in the snow and I am freezing cold. Do I take the freezing cold experience of the snow personally? I don't because it's like, well, this is this is the nature of snow and anyone here on this mountaintop with me will be freezing like me too. So we don't even think about it from a personal level. But then let's make it more life-based, like everyday-based. If you're walking down this footpath and there's a, a little rock that you didn't see and you stubbed your toe, anyone walking on that path in the same way as you, hitting that rock with their toes, going to stub their toe and experience the the pain of that. It's not personal. Anyone going on that path would experience it. It's the same with relationship. The difficulty, the pain, the darkness that comes, all the different things that happen, I know it's personal, but it's actually not. It's because anyone, so what makes things harder for people is they personalize it and say, I'm the only one in the world that feels this way. Actually, it's not. Anyone in your position in that situation will feel the same way. It's impersonal. So that's something to remember in the background of our thinking that will help us navigate through the dark tunnels of of rejection because you can't go around these tunnels. You can't go over the top. You can't walk out the other way. The only way through these situations is exactly that, through these situations. And, and don't carry any heaviness or or stuff from the previous tunnel into the next relationship because all you're going to do is you're setting yourself up for failure or setting yourself up for the same experience. Um, It's kind of like realizing the impersonal nature of life. We need to realize that, okay, well, when we land on the next, you know, situation with a new relationship, we're beginning again. And let's just be all of us and let's be involved and Let's just see where it takes us because if it succeeds, boy, oh boy, is it worth it. From personal experience, I feel like identity for me is such a big thing. Do you, do you no, think so same. too? I am so guilty. That snow analogy used really, I've been thinking about it probably like the last three minutes. Yeah, It's so true. Like realizing the snow is cold, like it's not personal. And yeah. these situations And it's not aren't. an attack on yourself. No. Yeah. Exactly. And relationships, I know that they're different to being at the snow but from a psychological standpoint, what we really need to understand is that anyone in your situation in the same, like anyone in my situation when I was 19 with that girl, going you know, going through the three-month experience, because a relationship of three months when you're 19 is like a five-year relationship when you're 40, right? That's just how it is. It's a big deal, right? But so anyone in that situation would have experienced the same pangs of pain that I would have experienced. So even though I'm experiencing it on a personal level, being at the snow and the snow rubbing on my skin, I'm experiencing it personally, but it's not personal because anyone would have experienced the same thing. And that's an attitude that I've learned to carry in every part of my life. And it's made a big difference in how I handle, you know, challenge and uncertainty in my life. The next point was about values, right? I have a question. Do you think if in a relationship, if two people have differing values, because I know some people would be family, some people's maybe would be career. I think for me personally, mine would probably be like career. Do you think you can make it work if you have two people that don't have the same values? As as long as there's overlap, Maddie. as long as there's an overlap of a, a significant overlap of a, it's not just a touch point, but it's sing- so, so you bring an interesting point up about career versus family orientation. So you've got people, there's two sort of macro groups of values. There's careers-driven people and relationship-driven people. Now, this doesn't mean that a career-driven person is not relationship-based. What it, So I'm a careers-values-driven person. My wife is a relationship-values-driven person. What that means is that her, because Savannah hasn't worked uh, since uh, I started my business in 2006, and then our sons were born in 08, and she's loving and still loving being full-time mom and all that kind of stuff. So she doesn't miss she doesn't think, oh, I'd love to get back on the tools again. I'd like to go and make money. I'd like to go. Doesn't It's not part of her fabric. As much as my family is my rock and they're my everything, if whenever we go away or whenever I stop working for a couple of weeks or whatever it is, I start getting itchy feet. It's like I need to go and do another workshop. I need to go and do a talk. I need to go and speak at that conference. I need to do all these things because I'm a careers-values-driven person. But our relationship works because there's other values that we overlap on significantly in terms of what we view, you know, our values around marriage, our values around, you know, family, our values around, you know, health, vitality, uh, knowledge, wisdom, curiosity, 
um, laughter, lightness. You know, our, our, our interest in our spiritual curiosities are the same. You know, we're you know we're fascinated by similar things, and um, so that's what's keeping us glued together. Because you don't fall in love with the person; you fall in love with their values, and and it's possible, absolutely, if someone's career is driven, the other one's more relationship driven. As long as there's other values where they overlap on, then that will work. And you can have obviously careers and careers, relationship and relationship. If you've got two people who are more relationship driven, um, you know they you'll find that the, in a pairing like that, uh, they tend to work more as an ends, the means to an ends because they have to earn money to you know manage the house, or whatever. Or you can have two careers values driven person put people together. Whether they have kids or not is beside the point. As long as there's other values that brings them together, because your values are like it's an expression of your deepest desires of what matters. And 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 the purpose of a relationship is to amplify you, not minimize you. I've seen just recently in my family orbit, right, where a couple of um people in my family, their their partners, their husbands have died in the last couple of years. And I find it astounding how since their husbands have died, these two particular women have flourished. They've grown. They've gone to another level. And it's like I said to myself, how can that be? You know, when we're with people, best friends, life partner, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, you know, however you want to frame it, the purpose of that relationship. So you two coming together, it amplifies the beauty within you both. It, it amplifies, Maddie amplifies Caitlin, Caitlin amplifies and magnifies Maddie's beauty. Does that make sense? That's the purpose of coming together, whether it's love, what's love here, or whether it's romance love or whether it's friendship love or, and there's has to be values overlap. And how you know, one of the basic clues that you have a lot of, a lot of stuff in common is how much you laugh together. Notice that the people that you are closest to, you laugh with the most. And the people that you are most distant from, you laugh with the least. Because my wife said to me many years ago, she said, I thought it was a bit over the top, but now I understand it. She said, uh, the day you stop making me laugh is the day that this is over. And I thought, gee, that's a bit extreme. Um, but she's right. Because you know what laughter does? It brings you together. It brings you closer together. The shortest distance between you and anybody else is laughter. So that's a long answer to a great question. I hope I've answered it. No, no, no. That was great. I was just, yeah, I was thinking about that when you said values before. I know that some people ask that a lot, like if you've got totally different perspectives, but that's nice to know that it can work as long as there's an overlap there. There has to be overlap, Maddie, because if there's no overlap, the, 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 after the personal attraction wears off, there's nothing left. The honeymoon phase, there's nothing left. Honey, honeymoon phase. <laughs> that's a good point as well. I think even for if someone's in that life stage of when they want to choose their forever partner is a great point to think about if your values really do have that overlap or if it's just that surface level attraction and if they make you laugh. And if they make you laugh. And, and I think that if you're, if you're going into, if you're in a relationship where you're moving to a next sort of level of commitment, uh, there has to be some, some, fundamental topics that have to be you know spoken about do you want to have kids because that can be splitting people you know one person really wants to have kids the other one doesn't well that's got to be sorted because if that's a sticking point then you've got to make some tough decisions right depending on how much this person wants to have a child and how much this person doesn't want to have a child right then there's other things you know do you, does this person live their nomadic lifestyle they like to move around every six months or so what about this person do they like that too if, if so rock on fantastic but for example me I'm a homebody. I'm not interested in the nomadic life. I like staying where I am and then traveling from here, but this is my home. If my wife wanted to move every six months, we wouldn't be together anymore. These are some of the macro topics. What about money? What about your attitude toward money? Do you do you spend frivolously without responsibility or do you also have some discipline and do you do you save and learn how to invest and put money away and be patient with that? You know, money breaks up a lot of relationships, guys, you know, where one person's got completely different attitudes toward cash versus the other one that's got the opposing sort of opinion on money. So these are some of the macro topics that have to be broached, that have to be spoken of if you are feeling like in this relationship, okay, the honeymoon phase is over, we're going well and things seem to be fine, I'm, we're really digging each other, we're enjoying each other's company, we're having a good laugh. 
now you need to get clear on some of the these significant topics because unfortunately some people discover these too late they bought a house together or they're married there's an obligation that's now legal whether it's a house bounding contract or something or a lease agreement it's like you don't want to have kids gee you spend money crazily or you want to move you want to go and live over there for six months you know like it's just different lifestyles like what am i doing because it's different living with someone, as you know, versus just dating, right? So you have to broach these topics to make sure that there's, again, overlap and agreement. It doesn't have to be perfection, but just overlap. Very, really, really important. I've heard a lot of people saying that money is just like... I've had I've had a statistic that says it's the number one biggest cause for relationship failure. Yeah. And I don't like, know if that's right. Don't quote me. I'm not sure. The most unromantic thing ever as well. Like, oh, let's talk about money. But yeah. it should be somewhere at the top of the list, yeah. it seems. Yeah, 100%. Because money is an energy. It's a very intense expression of energy. Think about it this way, girls. Imagine uh, just after this call today, I don't know, you, you have a look at your uh, an account online and there's 10 grand missing and you don't know where it's gone. Or there's an eight grand uh, charge on your credit card and you don't know, what's this? And there's another eight grand one and another, like there's money going. And you don't know. You're going to feel some energy around that. Stress, reaction, response, or what happened to someone that I know, this is rare, where some 20 or 30 grand landed in their account by accident. And uh, thankfully, they told the bank, because if you don't tell the bank, eventually they find out and you're going to have to pay it back with interest. So, And this person was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like tax-free money. It's like, wow. It's like, but imagine that. Imagine what about the people who win the lottery? Like for a little while, they're just absolutely over the because money is such a, a strong energy. And um, think about it that way. And and there's an energy exchange between two people in a relationship. So if my attitude toward money is different to this person, the energy mismatch is going to create real issues. Because imagine for a moment if one of you, let's just pretend that you're both, you know, in a romantic relationship. And let's just say that Maddie is a, dis- a disciplined, you know, consistent saver um, and thinks about her choices about what to buy and all this sort of stuff. Let's just pretend. And Caitlin, let's just pretend for a moment that you're the opposite of that, where it's like, you know, you don't think long term, you think short term, you're reactionary, you just spend money no matter what and all the rest of, the rest of, the rest of it. That's going to get to a point in the relationship where when you need to both think about buying something substantial like a house or something like that or committing to a lease or buying a car or something, you can have vastly different um, experiences of that where you're going to really be triggering each other with with uh, the different patterns of spending. So sounds superficial, this whole money talk, but it's not. It's it's a big energetic piece in a relationship. You went that far off when you, <laughs> when you put our descriptions. I was like, well, that's pretty dead on. Uh, well, yeah, kind of. So I guess – in terms of emotional fitness, like we've spoken about kind of the five different types. If you are going through life, being aware of these things, and I guess you could talk about like how can this positively impact your life? If you're aware of all these things, how can you implement the knowledge you have around it to improve your life and to improve your reactions to things, especially if negative things happen to you? Yeah, great question. So that's where we can turn our attention to uh, emotional flexibility because uh, what happens is, I'll give you an example. Like you might be walking down the street, you see a friend across the other side of the street. It's a busy street, cars, people, all that sort of thing. You see your friend or someone that you know, you wave to them, they don't wave back. In that moment, what do you make it mean? You know? And so in that moment, when you, when, when you, there's, there's sort of like three different levels of truth when it comes to meaning, because I could, I could uh, walk down the street, see my friend, they don't wave back. And I could, I could make it mean, oh, she doesn't like me. Or he doesn't like I knew it. I knew it. Doesn't like me. Um, and, and that thought that I've just manufactured in my head, I've just made it up. It's a story. Um, that might then, then that'll give me a feeling of sadness and rejection. And with sadness and rejection, I might send them a little angry text message or an angry email or something. And, and that creates a different response. And suddenly I'm in this scenario that I've, manufactured in my mind because the question has to be asked, how do you know that they don't like you? That's And that's living at this, what we call um, imagined level of truth. So there's three levels of truth. So let me just explain this properly. Everywhere that we go, whatever we experience, we're putting meaning on things. 
And depending on the meaning that we put on things will determine how we feel. So how we feel is not just how I feel. How I feel is because of a thought that I've had, the meaning I've given that thought will create the emotion. The problem is that it happens so fast, like one ten thousandth of a second, it happens so fast, the illusion is, no, 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 that's just how I feel. It's like, no, no, you feel that way because of the meaning that you've put on whatever it is that you were focusing on. Because life is just simply what we focus on. Let's go back to the street scenario. I wave to my friend. She doesn't wave back. Let's just say I, I out of all the, the meanings I could attribute to it, because I call it like a meaning-making menu in your mind. It's like, what do I make this mean? She doesn't like me. Now, if I start with that story in my head, that's going to put me on a different trajectory, a different pathway for the rest, for the next hour. You know, it's going to affect how I'm feeling. And an emotion that we continue feeling for a number of hours transforms into a mood and it starts affecting the rest of our day. So what we need to realize is in these moments when we're feeling a certain way, we need to reverse engineer that in our minds and say, hold on, what was I just thinking about? What was the meaning I just gave that that's created this feeling? And so then we can we can remember that, and I'll share this with you now, is that there's three levels of truth, three levels of meaning. There's there's a, there's a imagined truth, which is my imagination saying, oh, she doesn't like me. Or there's assumed truth. Assumed truth is where I might say to myself, oh, she just didn't see me. It's neutral. I'm not going to feel any triggers around that. I'm not going to feel any emotion. And then there's actual truth, which is the, the facts. The facts are I'm on this side. She's on that side. I wave. She didn't wave back. There's no commentary. There's no story. There's nothing, right? So whenever you're experiencing a conversation with someone at work or something that's happened in the street or something that's happened in your relationship, become aware of the meaning that you've put on it and ask yourself, how do I know that's true? And most of the time, you'll discover that you don't know that it's true. It's something that we have fabricated and imagined and created in our mind. And But the, the emotion, though, guys, is just as real if it was if it was actually true, oh, no, it's fact. She doesn't like me because she actually told me I don't like you, right? If that, if that actually happened, the emotion is no different to that not being true and me manufacturing it in my mind. You see, the unconscious mind doesn't know the difference between something that's actually happened versus something that we're imagining. It it's a, we get affected the same way. So, if I'm creating scenarios everywhere that I go in my head based on no facts, based on no reference points. I'm just making these things up in my head. I'm going to feel a certain way. And as far as my experience of that emotion is concerned, it's no different to it if it was actually true. Yeah. So do you think you should go through life as assumed truths? Yes. Beautifully said, Maddie. Yeah, because okay. assumed truth is the most balanced. Because actual truth is very harsh. Like it's like an it's like you're a robot. Sometimes that can be like in particular jobs, like if you're a pilot or an engineer or a scientist. You've got to deal with the actual truth because you're dealing with data, facts. That's where it's really, really useful. Assume truth, spot on, because it's balanced. You can you can sometimes go to imagined, sometimes you can go to actual, but assume truth is, is more neutral. So let's go back to the street scenario, right? My friend doesn't like me. I live at assumed level of truth. Oh, she just didn't see me. Now, how am I going to feel from, oh, she just didn't see me? Indifferent. I'm going to feel just, yeah, it's okay. I might send a little cheeky message and say, are you blind? I saw you today. Just joking and it's fine. And, and it doesn't affect our day. But if I'm living at imaginable truth, fabricating all this bullshit in my head, then it's going to affect my day. And let me repeat what I said earlier. If I become a victim of my own thinking, I didn't actually say that before, but if I become a victim of my own thinking, which is I've just fabricated a story about this person on the other side of the street that's not based on fact, and that story is making me feel like really ordinary. And then as I'm walking down the street, continuing on my morning, and I'm sticking with that thought, I'm tuning into that emotion, I'm staying there. What I was saying earlier was that transforms into a mood. Now my whole day is going to be affected because of some stuff that I made up from that interaction. Then the next morning when I wake up, our conscious mind, our consciousness resets every morning, like, like an ocean beach. The shoreline gets reset. All the sandcastles go away. All the footprints disappear, and the shoreline is set for a new day. So the next morning, when I get up, if the first thing I decide to think about is, "Oh, that's right, I saw Maddie the other day, and she didn't wave back. I don't reckon she likes me anymore." Right? If I start thinking like that, guess what happens? 
I'm rehashing the emotion. The mood comes back. And if I do that for a number of days in a row, that mood will transform into my temperament. It becomes part of my persona. Now, now you've got a problem because that's something we've, we've created now, really put deep into our psych, you know, to our into our neurology. So the most practical tip I can give anyone here is that when you feel a certain way, especially if you're feeling a certain a way that you don't like, all you've got to do is just literally in your mind, press the pause button and go, oh, hold on, what was I just thinking about that created this feeling? Oh, that's right. I was thinking about X, Y, and Z. Well, hold on. How do you know that what you're making it mean is even true? I actually don't. Oh, so you're living at an imagined level of truth, are you? Well, what about if you were to just notch it down a bit and go to assume level of truth and go, well, you know what? I don't actually know what she meant the other day. I actually don't know. That's that's how it is. So maybe what I've been making up in my head is just completely, you know, exactly that, made up. Is that making sense, guys? No, that's such a good point. And I'm just thinking of when people write in, it's usually girls will write in and they misread, like if their boyfriend or someone they're seeing doesn't reply within like an hour, they'll be like, oh, they hate me or they're seeing someone else and they- They jump to these conclusions that are completely made up. Yeah. So that's such a good point. I think if you go through life with the assumed level, I think it would take a lot of these made up things away and less- Bad moods. (laughs) I think it would solve, honestly, I looking back at my earlier 20s, I had no assumed truth. Everything was up here. And what you said about stopping yourself and just going through the motion of getting back to assumed truth, if everyone does that, I think you will save like 80%. Of the issues massively, in your life. yeah, really. huge. it's so valuable yeah. what you just said. Thank you. That was yeah. a really good point. I really liked that. Yeah, it's because uh, emotions are really powerful, as, as I'm sure you know. They they flavor every nook and cranny of our experience. Without emotion, you can't make sense of the world. You know, emotion is what brings everything, the color and the experience alive. So the quality of you know just realizing every day our role in manufacturing emotion through the meaning that we give things is 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 invaluable you know it's been said by many that we are meaning making machines in a world that has no meaning when i say the world has no meaning i don't mean that from a from a doom and gloom perspective i mean you walk into a room however you experience it is the meaning that you give it oh how caitlin just looked at me i'm putting a meaning on that well and then how does that make you feel does it make you feel good well rock on if it makes you feel good and it's a good thing you know i feel good because that that look that caitlin just gave me is you know she likes me okay well rock on Right. But if I'm if I'm continually going to the dark side of of the meaning that I'm giving things, you know, she doesn't like me, these people don't like me, and all this sort of stuff. Well, now you're going to create uh, like a it's like a snowball effect where it just becomes, you know, bigger and bigger. And then you become an attractor of drama. And uh, you know, what you become one of these people that all the wrong things happen to. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear about your research into what happens when people have near-death experiences. We think that's super interesting and would love to hear more if we can. Yeah, this is a question I've never been asked before on a podcast. Um, so there was a guy called Dr. Raymond Moody. He wrote a book called Life After Life in 1975, and it's been updated. He's still alive today, still researching. It's been updated in excess of 20 times. The man interviewed over 20,000 people over this period of time. The criteria for a near-death experience uh, case is where the brain and the heart have to stop functioning for about 15, 10, 15 minutes or something, like it's extreme. Um, and uh, so in other words, they're relying on a machine. So everything's still going, but they're not going. The machine's keeping them going. And then miraculously, they come back into their bodies. So then it's the experience of what happened while you were missing? And all of the experiences vary greatly in the sense of um, some people have really dark experiences. Some people have unspeakably beautiful, joyous, beyond language experience, like just amazing. And um, what they found is that there are certain patterns that uh, a lot of cases, a lot of people have uh, reported back. One of the consistencies that they report back is where there's, I'll call it a life review, but I don't even know if that's the right words, but it's where you get given an opportunity to actually watch your movie of life again, but you're seeing it all kind of at once. 
because they say that when you exit the physical environment into the non-physical, um, time and space cease to exist. It's like you experience everything at once, which is confusing to us because we don't know what that even means. Um, but what happens is that when you go into this other state, state, you 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 get to review your life. You get to review all the things that happen. And something that gets highlighted is that, or some some of the stuff that people have noticed, is that all of the awards, significance, recognitions, achievements, none of that even gets acknowledged. What gets acknowledged is one primary thing. Do you want to have a guess what it is? Connections, like, connections with people. Getting, getting, getting warm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The question that matters the most is how well. There's two questions. How well did you love, and how well did you allow love in? Did you allow others to love you? That is a massive, consistent feedback from when people come back into their body. So the near-death experience people, I mean, obviously all of them come back because we get to hear their story. Um, their life transforms in a heartbeat because, and they become unconditionally loving when they come back. This is not all cases, but most cases because of this experience, this reminder of you, 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 you've been placing all this value in all these things, you know, the ambition-driven world, but what about the meaning-driven world and the fourth phase, which is the spirit archetype of identity, is how well did you love? And I, I, I just, to me, that was a profound takeout from all the near-death stuff that I've read, and it's a reminder of when we get caught up in our personal dramas of life, that I swear to you, if you were lying on your metaphorical, literal deathbed and you've only got a day left to live, you're not going to worry about what the people say about you online and all these different things. What you're going to be focusing on are the people that you love. So who who do you love and who loves you? That's it. That's what it comes down to. In the final moments of life, that is the only thing that will ever matter forever. So the way that that's affected me is, is that I do the best I can that whenever I'm out in the environment, whether I'm walking down an aisle in the supermarket, is to just simply acknowledge the existence of other people by just smiling. If your eyes meet, you just smile and you keep walking and you go about your day. Or you say hello to someone. I go running a lot, as you know, Maddie, with, with your mum. And, you know, I, I, I do the best I can to say hello to all the complete strangers that we run past because you never know what's going on in their life. And for someone to acknowledge their existence, to see them, can make a massive difference. You don't know what that person's thinking. They could have been thinking, I've had enough. I'm going to do something today that's going to really harm my harm myself. I might end it today. You can, you can and just by you expressing with love, not in a in a in a in a weird way, I'm talking in a genuine way, where you express your good morning or your acknowledgement or your hello or just a smile can make a massive difference to how someone feels and you can change the trajectory of their life just with something so small. The 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 other thing from near death research that I've sort of become it's become sort of clear to me is that our life is not about us. <laughs> that our life is about others. That's that's a tough pill to swallow. It is it is. It is, especially at the athlete stage. Yeah. <laughs> Life is about others. It's about the impact that you're making, the difference that you're making, contribution that you're making. Uh, that's another key lesson I got from the near-death experience research. So um, all of the experiences, I mean, you can find these on YouTube. There's some stories that will blow your mind in terms of what they experience. I, I don't, I can't even come close to describing what, even what they're describing. But it's the lessons that I focus on. What what are, what are these people sharing with us that matters the most? And so, they're, they're the things that matter the most. And and when, because one of one of the uh, hundreds of roads to anxiety and depression is self absorption, focusing on self. Because you can focus on yourself. If you focus on yourself for one or two weeks, you're going to get depressed. It's not a reflection of your character or you you as a person. That's just the nature of the human being. So one of the things I learned from near-death experiences is that 
how well are you loving? How well are you allowing love in? And realizing that your life is not about you, it's about your contribution to humanity. And humanity, I don't mean the world, contribution to that person you just saw in the supermarket, contribution to your friends, contribution to the people that you love, contribution to your clients, to your market, to your community. Um, Focusing on that. Because there was a guy called uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And this was this was a fellow who lived through one of the most atrocious um, concentration camps of World War II. And he survived that. And he survived it because he was focusing on what if he survived this, could he teach others how to survive any atrocity, any trauma, anything, let alone a relationship bust up, right? It's the same sort of approach, but obviously with him it was more extreme. And he came out of that saying one of his things that he says is that our primary desire in life is not pleasure. It's meaning. It's meaning. And we will overcompensate our pleasures where we're lacking meaning. And we get meaning in life by helping other people, by contributing to others. Uh, That's how we actually start to fall in love with fucking life itself. That's how you fall in love. And then when you're like that, you meet a person that you're you're attracted to and you, you might go out on a date and just check out things and see what happens. Is there's a different vibe about you. There's a frequency and a vibe, a vibe about you that is one of care, warmth, nurturance, kind, loving, let alone do the right thing, trustworthy, integrous, you know? And uh, and this this makes a big difference. So I hope I've um, provided you with some insights there on some of the two the, the main takeouts I've taken from from it. No, that was so interesting. I feel like that's such a nice way to kind of wrap this whole talk up is just those insights from the research that you did is, yeah, go through life with showing love, receiving love a little bit more. I think that's a really nice takeaway. Yeah. And it takes courage. Yeah. Yeah. It takes courage, guys. Honestly, this felt like a little bit like therapy. As you were speaking, I was Mm. just taking everything in so much and it makes me just want to go call my mom and like everyone just be like, oh, hello, because it's so true. We get so caught up and we probably are still vibing the athlete <laughs> a little bit. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like sometimes you just take, 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 a, take because we're yeah. trying to get to that next point, but it's like you actually, that's not what life's about. And we end yeah. up just feeling like shit, as yeah. you said, depressed when you're just worried about yourself and your career and how, you know, your, sorry, my, my puppy. <laughs> she's got dog. her dog. Oh, okay. Got her, okay. <laughs> she's like growling a little bit over there. Um, so yeah, I think that was such an amazing takeaway for yeah. everyone listening, just to tell people you love them and I guess be more present with yeah. your connections. Mm. Yeah, and, and also allow yourself to love yourself. True. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's um and and loving of self begins with self-trust. Self-trust. And self-trust is where you say to yourself, that you're going to do something, right? You, you might promise yourself that uh, you know what I'm going to I'm going to do a 25 minute walk three times a week around the streets here or whatever, right? And and then you let yourself down because you don't do it. If you do that, do the walks, whatever it is that you've promised yourself, and you see that through, and it becomes part of your you know your morning ritual or whatever it is, you're building self trust. And um, when you build self trust, that evolves into self love. Right, and self love and self trust then gives you self respect. And when you are a self respecting woman or man who trusts themselves and who loves themselves, I'm talking non ego here. I'm not talking oh you love yourself like an ego thing. That's not what I'm talking about. It's where you actually value you as much as you value somebody else. You're you're making yourself ready for that relationship that you've always wanted. Wow, I love that. The mm. self-love is self-trust. And I, and I'm guessing by trust as well you mean discipline because we've been yeah. we've been listening to a lot of podcasts about discipline right now and I feel like that really does come into so it does influence so many parts of your lives if you can show yourself discipline which I think is like you were saying a form of self-love. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a that's a definitely an element of uh, of self-trust. So self-trust is keeping the promises that you made to yourself. Uh, only you know whether you let them down or not, let yourself down or not, because how you are with you is how you exude 
the energy that you exude to the people that you meet, right? So, you know, when you meet someone, you get a vibe, you go, gee, I feel like I can trust this person or I feel like this one here is a bit, mm, I shouldn't be near this person. It's, it's you're getting an insight unconsciously into their inner world, into how they're wired on the inside. So that's why self-development to me is one of the most important things that you could do forever because by, by working on yourself in order to be able to contribute more and create more meaning for yourself and for others, the, the, the meaning, that's, that's how you find purpose because it's been said, I can't remember who said this, but someone said, you know, the, the human being is wired um, to serve, you know. We do more for others than we'll do for ourselves. It's got nothing to do with self-esteem. That's just how we're wired. Nature is the same. Everything in nature exists because of its contribution to everything else. Gosh, this is put everything I feel like we're running out of time. I know. We probably should wrap it up. I feel, <laughs> I feel like we could do like five-part episodes. Like we didn't even touch on those other two what was it? Like, there's so much to talk about here. Well, you know what? I'll be get get the feedback from uh, your beautiful people that follow you, and um, if if you want me to come back, I can, and if not, that's okay too. I won't take it personally. I feel like <laughs> a second one would be really good because I feel like as well we didn't like. I feel like you can talk about like depression more as well. I think this one we spoke about relationships, but anyways, that's. Yeah, that's me thinking head. <laughs> no, no, that would be amazing for sure. We'll put this out there and see what, see what the feedback is. I think we're going to wrap this up here, but thank you so much for coming on today. These insights have been incredible. Caitlin and I feel like we've had a therapy session yeah. talking with you. <laughs> I feel like everyone is going to get a lot from this episode and I'm really excited to put it out there. And can I just share with you girls, um, uh, I've got um, I've got this magazine, right, Insights. It's a free magazine. Like This is actual, the actual copy of it, 44 page. But if the people go to just joeparnay.com.au, they can download for free a digital version of that magazine. And it's a 44-page magazine with all articles about these kinds of topics. So, And and there's about 20 articles in there. They're really uh, useful. Amazing. We'll put a link in the episode description. So if anyone's interested, you can just go straight there. Straight on. Have a look. Yeah, perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. thank you. We'll see you in part two, maybe. (laughs) All right, that's it for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this chat with Joe. I know I definitely took a lot from it and as did Maddie. I felt like we were just in therapy <laughs> with our dad, respectfully, Joe. Um, <laughs> honestly, it was really great and some of these things I really needed to hear and I will be taking on board, living in the moment, live, laugh, love. You guys know the gist. You listen to the whole episode. But, yeah, we hope you loved it. We hope you can take a bit from this. If you want to get in contact with Joe or if you want to look into his work some more, I've put some links down below that could be helpful. But apart from that, I'll see you all – well, we – sorry, Maddie's here in spirit – We'll see you all on Thursday for a chatty catch-up classic GC episode. And yeah, we can't wait. Bye.